to the Development Policy Centre podcast. In this episode, we bring you a lecture and discussion with Alice Albright, CEO of the Global Partnership for Education. As GPE prepares for its next replenishment round, Albright discussed the challenges facing education financing more broadly and GPE's current work. Well, good afternoon, everyone. And thanks very much to all of you for uh, braving uh, Canberra's uh, nasty weather uh, tonight. So it's good to have this uh, turnout despite the bad weather. Uh, So if you don't know me, my name's Stephen Howes, and I'm the director of the Development Policy Centre. And um, we're very, uh, today's a busy day for us. We've got two events, which is unusual, but um, we had the opportunity to host uh, Alice Albright, and uh, we couldn't really turn that down. So we've put on uh, tonight's event to follow the evaluation forum that uh, some of you are at, and we've, we've just held. Uh, as always, let's begin by acknowledging the first Australians, the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting, and by paying our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. Uh, before I introduce Alice, I am just going to uh, make one more welcome. I want to welcome Professor Heejin Lee, who's sitting there at the back. Heejin is, is a professor in uh, Seoul, in Korea, and is the president of the Career Association of International uh, Development and Cooperation, KAIDEC. Yeah, so it's like the Association for Development Studies in Korea. It's a very dynamic organization, has a leading role in the region and um, is, uh, is being, we have a growing partnership. So uh, we're delighted to have you here. Eugene, thanks very much for coming. Uh, but we're here tonight to listen to Alice Albright. So she's going to speak on financing global education, challenges and opportunities. Obviously, tell us about the Global Partnership on Education, what they're up to, but also more broadly about how they they perceive the challenge of financing education and different innovative ways in which it might be met. So just to tell you a bit about our speaker, uh, Alice Albright was appointed as the first Chief uh, CEO of the Global Partnership for Education Secretariat in February 2013. And before taking this role, she served in the Obama administration as the Executive Vice President Chief Operating Officer of the Export Import Bank of the United States, and before that as Chief Financial and Investment Officer for Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance. Uh, so she had a very distinguished career and uh, very privileged, privileged to have you here tonight. Uh, so we look forward to hearing from you, and uh, perhaps you'll leave some time for q and I'm sure yes. there'll be lots of questions. So please welcome Alice Albright. Welcome. Thank you. Good evening. Uh, It's wonderful uh, to be here. This is my uh, third trip to Australia. Uh, And given the very close relationship that our countries have, I always look forward to coming here. Uh, It's a pretty oppressive environment in Washington right now for literally and figuratively. So it's a great relief to get to come here, uh, even though it's not such great weather today. Uh, But I'm delighted to be here anyway, and I very much commend the work that you're doing Uh, here at the Development Policy Center. Let me start by again acknowledging the important role uh, that the DPC plays at ANU, promoting informed debate and analysis of the role of aid in development and foreign policy. We are living in times when foreign aid is under considerable scrutiny, uh, and there is nothing wrong with that, but we should not lose sight of the fact that our world is very interconnected and that what happens in the Americas, in Asia, in the Pacific, Africa and the Middle East very much affects all of us. We have an obligation to support the most vulnerable, and that is one of the main reasons why GPE exists. But careful, focused investment in human potential is also an investment in our own prosperity and our own security. Education is central to ending extreme poverty, to improving health outcomes, to fighting disease, to creating jobs and sustainable growth. It is also a significant contributor to long-term stability, and if we really want to reduce the growing numbers of people who leave their countries each year to seek opportunities elsewhere, we need to make sure that their children have access to good, quality education in their home countries. I'm here tonight to discuss the challenges that we face in global education and how the Global Partnership for Education, the organization that I have the privilege to lead, is adapting and innovating to respond. 
I hope that everyone here already is convinced of the importance of education and meeting SDG 4, which seeks to ensure inclusive and equitable quality education and lifelong learning opportunities for all by 2030, which is a close 13 years away. Progress, however, is way too slow. We can't keep doing the same thing and expect the transformative results that we want. At GPE, we have adopted SDG 4 as our vision and our mission, and we are fully committed and focused to achieving this goal. For those of you who are less familiar with GPE, we are the only global fund dedicated solely to education in the developing countries, and specifically to improving learning and equity. Just as important as the fact that we are a fund is our founding principle of partnership. The GPE Board of Directors includes donors and developing country partners, international institutions, civil society, the business community, and philanthropy. Each constituency has a seat and a table, and each constituency has a seat at the table and a voice in decision making, quite different, in fact, from the top-down traditional donor-recipient arrangements of the past. Across the partnership, we know that education is essential to the well-being of citizens and the future of societies. But too often, the developing countries that we work with lack the funding and the technical infrastructure to deliver quality education to all of their children, particularly those that live in the poorest and the remotest areas and are affected by conflict and instability. Globally, we face a learning crisis, which means that there are 264 million children of primary and secondary school age out of school. There are an additional 130 million children who can barely read or write, even at the primary level. Without immediate and radical action to invest more in education, over half of the world's upcoming youth generation 825 million of the 1.6 billion young people who will be alive in 2030 will simply not be equipped to work and thrive in the 21st century. The result is that hundreds of millions of young people are being left behind, never to acquire the skills that they need to break out of poverty or to become contributing parts of their society or to be able to compete successfully in an increasingly globalized, and technologically driven world. Their countries are also deprived of the human talent essential to building economically dynamic, stable, and sustainable societies. Thus, we are all less well off. Wherever there is a huge divide between the relatively well-educated, prosperous people and those without, there is inequality of opportunity, which drives discontent and conflict which can spill over national borders and, region, and across regions as well. Our mission is to confront this and to help solve it. I'd like to highlight three specific steps that we think are key to meeting the aims of the 2030 Agenda. The first is very clear, increase financing. We are falling quite short. More funds are needed from all sources, domestic budgets, ODA budgets, multilateral development banks, and the private sector also has an important role to play here. The second is taking a systems approach, which means improving national education systems. National governments must be in the lead, determining their own national priorities and driving systemic reform. We've learned from the investments that we've made in global health that strengthening systems is the key to sustainable change. The third, of course, is innovation. We need to disrupt the sector with new ideas, new partners, recognizing that business as usual will not achieve SDG 4. Let me turn to financing. On financing, let me be blunt. Right now, we are not investing enough in education globally to achieve SDG 4, not by a long shot. A new report from UNESCO shows that the share of aid allocated to education has been falling for six years in a row and is now lower than it was in 2010 even though overall aid levels are beginning to creep up again. That's a stark figure. Education has gone down six years in a row. To start bridging this funding gap, GPE is campaigning right now to ramp up its support to developing country partners to a level of $2 billion U.S. dollars a year by 2020. To reach this goal, we will need $3.1 billion from existing and new donors 
for the next three years of our work, 2018 to 2020. This is one of the core goals in our current refinancing campaign, as, or as we call it, our replenishment campaign. A full replenishment will enable the partnership to support 89 countries, which are home to 870 million children and youth, and perhaps more importantly, 78% of the world's out-of-school children. With these funds, we'll be able to put more than 25 million additional children into primary and lower secondary school, including almost 15 million uh, children who live in countries affected by fragility and conflict. Let me now talk about system strengthening. Strengthening education systems is at the center of GPE's business model, and we pay very close attention to accountability and a focus on results. GPE's first step is to work closely with partner governments to put in place strong education sector plans. These plans rally all players around a common vision and put countries in the lead. Education is ultimately a public good, and countries must be held accountable to their citizens for delivering it. What GPE does is to ensure countries have, have the support, both financially and technically, to succeed. With a quality plan in place, our partners can apply for GPE grants to help pay for implementation. Grant applications must include a finance proposal to systematically collect data and report on learning results. Very significantly, as part of our application process, governments must also step up their own expenditure on education. Here I want to emphasize that although we urgently need to scale up international aid for education, domestic funding will continue to be the source of the vast majority of funds. To become eligible for GPE's grant funding, country partners must commit to making real progress on allocating 20% of national budgets to education. For example, since joining the partnership in 2012, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, a country that I've now visited several times, has substantially increased its financing for education, going from 9% of that national budget in 2010 to 17.8% in 2014. And with GPE support, it is committed to reading, reaching 20% by 2018, which will make a huge difference for the millions of children who are out of school in that country. In Cambodia, perhaps a bit closer to home, hi Sue, uh, GPE works with the government to get more students in school and improve their learning performance. That includes investing in early childhood education, one of the most important and cost-effective ways to achieve better learning outcomes over the long term. Cambodia is now well on its way to enrolling more than half of its children aged three to five, about 122,000 and counting, in preschool in seven provinces throughout the country. And GPE has also funded a vision screening program in Cambodia, which has benefited from the advocacy efforts by a number of Australian civil society organizations, including a good friend of GPE's, the Fred Hollis Foundation. And as a result of that, we've been able to reach tens of thousands of Cambodian children. I'm also pleased to say that we've begun the process of bringing Myanmar into the partnership. We've been working with their officials to assess their education needs, and we hope to be able to make a formal announcement in a few more weeks, at which time Myanmar will be eligible to apply for a substantial grant of GPE funds. I think everybody throughout the globe who's been watching the political events in Myanmar will be thrilled to see them become part of GPE. GPE has also helped Papua New Guinea rebuild the basic, the basic education infrastructure there that has been battered by years of unrest. Through programs such as PNG Read, for instance, hundreds of thousands of children now have the reading skills that they need. And of course, we have a long-standing relationship with Timor-Leste, which has been a member of the GPE partnership since 2005. GPE recognizes that the particular challenges of the Pacific small island development states in terms of remoteness, small populations, and vulnerability uh, have created particular challenges for them. In 2014, we expanded our eligibility criteria to include eight more Pacific island states. And we are pleased to now be working, for example, with Kiribati to develop an education sector plan with the coordinating support of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and UNICEF. 
The Federated States of Micronesia and the Republic of the Marshall Islands have also accessed GPE funding to carry out the important analytical work necessary to provide the evidence base that they will need to put in place for a new strong education sector plan. Going forward, GPE will continue to foster tailored partnerships with these small island states to help them respond to the particular challenges that they have. Our recent results report tell us that our focus on system strengthening is working. We know that GPE is reaching more children, that more of them are completing primary and lower secondary school, particularly girls and children living in GPE countries affected by fragility and conflict. GPE partner countries now have more trained teachers, in many cases reaching a ratio of 40 students or less per trained teacher. By Australian or perhaps United States standards, 40 children in a classroom with one teacher still sounds like it's not the right ratio, but when you compare it to what we see in many of the countries that we travel in, 40 is actually an achievement. In Afghanistan, GPE is supporting efforts to hire more female teachers, uh, particularly in rural areas, which is encouraging more children to go to, more girls to go to school, which is obviously a major accomplishment in that country. In Nepal, we have seen reductions of 20% in the number of girls who are out of school in the most disadvantaged districts over a several year period. Innovation is another important area of our work. Even though we have the fundamentals of the GPE model right, we've talked about system strengthening, we've talked about financing, we also know that we need to look systematically for opportunities to innovate and to disrupt. What does this mean? We will need to continue to have substantial amounts of core funding, but we will also need to have, we've also adapted our funding model to be able to accept targeted financing to focus on innovation in some key priority areas. Through GPE's new knowledge and innovation mechanism, we are enabling countries to bring promising pilots, focusing on specific challenges to scale. These could in fact be linked with successful projects such as those identified through DFAT's Innovation Exchange, and we'll be visiting more with them tomorrow and learning more about that. We currently have a pilot invested, in, we currently have a pilot investment from the Children's Investment Fund Foundation in London to support uh, gender-sensitive education sector planning. And we are seeking, for example, to raise an additional three million US dollars to extend the number of countries and partners that can participate in this. Donors can also invest in strengthening learning assessment systems, building better regional and global networks for this purpose, including in the Asia-Pacific area. This is our assessment for learning program, and we're seeking for this an additional $10 million as part of our replenishment campaign to broaden the support for it. We've also introduced a new leverage fund, which we're now calling our GPE Multiplier Fund, which will expand support to lower middle-income countries including four new countries in the Asia-Pacific region, Indonesia, the Philippines, Sri Lanka, and India. With this program, for each $3 that a country raises additionally for education, GPE will add an additional dollar, and this will create an incentive to try to get more money uh, into overall education system financing. And if you think about the overall challenge that we've talked about in terms of education financing, we hope that this will make a difference. We are forging new partnerships with the business community, such as the work that we're doing with the global insurance industry to transform the way school systems can be protected from the damaging impact of natural disasters. And we're also in a discussion with the private sector about how to address the serious data challenges that many of you will know exist in education and education policy. GPE is now better at the complex work of investing and strengthening education systems than ever before. For Australia, GPE's upcoming replenishment provides the opportunity to remedy the education challenges faced by the Asia Pacific region and to identify and target new resources to, to tackle these challenges. Australia has historically been a strong and committed partner of GPE and a generous supporter of investment in education, contributing during our last replenishment 140 million Australian dollars. Naturally, we'll be urging the government during this visit to increase their support so that together we can meet the regional and global education needs, especially for those that are the most vulnerable. We now have the pieces in place to bring about a transformation in global education that will have lasting benefit. We also have an opportunity with our replenishment campaign to deliver the step change that is badly needed in education financing. Back in the 2000s, I worked in global health at a place called Gavi. 
Where education stands today at the start of the SDGs is not unlike where global health stood at the launch of the MDGs. Then, we could never have believed that it was possible only 15 years later to be able to prevent tens of millions of deaths from vaccine-preventable diseases, provide treatment for HIV-AIDS, and help reduce the impact of malaria and tuberculosis. With commitment and ambition, I am optimistic that we can do the same thing for education. SDG 4 takes on much of the unfinished business of the MDGs and in fact goes much further, and it covers different levels of education, lifelong learning, and most importantly, it envisions substantial gains in quality and in equity. I'm quite optimistic because the world has begun to realize that education matters and that the education funding crisis is in fact, is in fact acute. Education financing challenges are at the top of the agenda of many global forums at the moment, and I expect, for example, that we'll spend quite a bit of time talking about it during the UN General Assembly uh, during September in New York. Tonight, I've highlighted some of the ways that we can work to scale up by taking the practical steps that we know, uh, we know work, increasing financing for education, working with countries to mobilize domestic resources, and putting in place robust education sector plans to help countries get on track in terms of improving how their national education systems deliver. We've also talked about some of the ways that we can innovate, bringing in new partners, bringing in new types of funding, testing new ideas, and developing shared platforms so that all countries can have the access to the latest information. I ask you to leave today this event and share the information with all that you work with about the work that we do at GPE, about our current replenishment campaign, it's our top priority at the moment, and especially with your government, with Australian businesses, civil society and philanthropy, to get the word about GPE's work out. I look forward to continuing to work with all of you, to continue to work with Australia, our very good friends at DFAT, uh, so we can all work together to put the energy that we need to, into to solve this acute crisis that I've talked about. So thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm happy to take some questions. Okay, well, thanks very much. Alice, that was a very stimulating address, and you've left lots of time for discussion. So please take advantage of that. Um, got a couple of mics here for the podcast. Get this out. Get the recording out. Is there a so, podcast? Oh, yeah, here it is. So. <laughs> okay, yeah. off we go with podcast. Yeah. And we ask you about Trump. You know, be careful what you say. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Zip it is what I'm going to do on that one. Um, I was, yeah, I was actually going to ask, um, that figure that you mentioned of, of the percentage of aid going to education dropping so significantly over time is quite staggering. And I wondered if you had any indication of the drivers behind that. Is there sort of priority on other sectors? Is it because of some of the changes that are happening in the donor landscape? And um, whether you could give us a little bit more information about that. I think that's a, it, it's a, it's a simple question with a very complicated answer, and I don't think that there's a single answer to it. Um, but let me come up with some, some thoughts on that. Uh, I think that in many countries, uh, the availability of education, of national education, and you could also say the same thing about some of the developed countries where we live, is sometimes taken for granted. Uh, you could almost say that the education crisis is perhaps a bit of a silent crisis. So it doesn't really get the headlines uh, that it does. One thing that we do in our work is to try to really make uh, the issue quite visible. That's why we talk about the number of children that are not in school, the number of girls that are not in school, uh, the fact that the financing trends are going in the wrong direction. Uh, another thing that is also uh, quite notable if you compare, for example, health and education is that in many uh, health sectors, it's, you can see results sort of over a one or two year period of time. Education, this is a university, so this will ring true, takes a lifetime. Uh, and you could almost philosophically argue that are any of us ever uh, completely educated. But if you look at uh, simply primary school through secondary school, you know, sort of the age of 15 or 16 or 17, uh, we need to become patient investors in what is a long game. Uh, that is not necessarily the easiest sell uh, in political environments. But... Uh, and I say this often, if you think about the impact on the globe of not being willing to make that patient investment, uh, it becomes a pretty scary picture. Health outcomes deteriorate dramatically. 
uh, income deteriorates dramatically. Uh, countries, societies' ability to contend with things like climate change deteriorate dramatically. Security issues up, uh, tensions up, uh, refugee flows up, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we need to make it a visible uh, and acute awareness of what the crisis is and get over the fact that it's a long game. But I think that's one of the reasons. Uh, one of the reasons that we've put in place at GPE uh, a results framework is that's give, and we've just done this recently, is it gives us a way to track progress year to year to year to year. We just produced our first results report, which I think one of my colleagues might have a copy of. Um, so that we begin to get much more granular on whether or not systems are beginning to advance. And we're, even after the first year of tracking it, we have begun to see results. Um, one question that I believe you asked was what's going on in the U.S.? Uh, we've been actually very lucky to be able to enjoy bipartisan support uh, on the Hill for the work that we've done. And over the recent uh, few years, have seen substantial increases in the amounts of money that we expect to get we have gotten from the Hill that we expect to, uh, to get going forward, uh, and we will continue to make the case uh, both on the Hill as well as in the administration. Murray. Murray Proctor, I ex Ozade, along with many others. Um, a question. Uh, now, we're, as you know well, this region, there's an enormous demographic challenge. There's so many young kids all over the Pacific and a lot of East Asia, if not all. Um, so what intrigues me and has some time is, go to any campus in Australia, pick up a rock and throw it. You will hit a global health expert or centre. <laughs> I can't think of one centre I could hit anywhere in Australia specialising in development, sorry, education in developing countries. So is it, I know your institution has brought a lot of intellectual credit from the World Bank and other sources to this topic. But why is it that there are so few curious academics or universities that want to focus on this? Hmm. Well, you guys can start here. <laughs> um, Apart from, of course. Yes. No, it's true. Um, it's a fair comment. Well, you know, I, I, as a, you know, 15 years ago, uh, when we were looking at the MDGs, it's probably more like 17 years ago when we were kicking off the MDGs, um, people would have said that a lot of the health outcomes were beginning to really falter. And so people got really serious about it. And now we've seen uh, some real improvements uh, in some key areas. It's by no means uh, a game one, but it's we've seen serious improvements. Um, so I think that we are in some ways at the same type of moment with education. So we've got to get people focusing on it. Now, there are some institutions that are really focused on it. There's OISI in Toronto, for example, and we were lucky enough a few years ago to snag uh, the dean of OISI to be our chief technical officer at GPE. Her name is Karen Mundy, and she's a sort of world-famous education rock star, and she works for us now. Um, and so that's uh, an exception to the rule that you've talked about. Uh, but I do think that we should uh, prompt as many think tanks and universities in the world to start studying this issue. Uh, I think people get a little bit, um, they have a pause because it's, it is a very challenging sector. Uh, it is not a sector that is, its cost structure is not subject to easily scalable solutions like you see elsewhere. Uh, it is... Uh, challenging to figure out how to work with the private sector, even though we're beginning to do that. Uh, the data issues are very challenging. I mean, it is a very challenging sector. So it's not one that we're going to be able to, you know, wake up tomorrow morning and say, okay, game over, problem solved. But if you think about, and as a university, you all will understand this better than anybody, if you think about a world where we don't solve these problems, it's unthinkable. It's absolutely unthinkable. So we have to begin to apply the muscle to what it takes to solve them. And one of the things that gives me uh, energy every single time uh, I go to a country is how dedicated and energetic the ministers of education in some of these most difficult countries are. Uh, one story that I often like to tell uh, is about Chad. Uh, Chad, as you know, has got refugees coming into it from almost... Uh, almost all of its borders, at the, uh, most recently Boko Haram uh, from Nigeria. And Chad uh, itself was already in pretty uh, difficult circumstances. 
they believed that they needed to do something to provide education to the refugee children coming in from Nigeria. And they went to the UN uh, appeals process and they asked for some money, $7 million. The UN appeals process was not able to give them uh, much more than about half a million dollars. Uh, they came to us and asked for about six or seven million dollars. We looked at all of our criteria and said, yes, we'll help you. But it was really notable that a government that is in as difficult circumstances as Chad believed that they had to reach out and do something for these refugees, which is quite unusual. Quite unusual. And it was so motivating uh, to hear what they did. The Japanese government also was uh, very helpful in contributing some funding there. And there are stories like that over and over again when you hear, you watch uh, the courage and the heroism of many of the people in these countries uh, contend with the challenges that they have, and it really is very, very motivating. And I think we need to uh, celebrate that, uncover it, and make the world realize that there's a lot of energy out there in the countries to begin to resolve these problems. Um, another uh, event that comes to mind, I was in Senegal at the ADEA conference in, it was about, I guess it was around March 15th or so, and I met with a number of uh, the ministers of education from Africa, and the energy and the commitment and the focus on being able to really overcome the literacy problems in some of their countries was palpable. So there are people out there who really want to solve this problem. We have to bring them all together. That's in many ways what GPE is all about, and start chipping away at it year after year, and start really making progress, and I believe that we can. And one of the reasons why I'm so confident about our business model is that it really focuses on systemic change over the long term. It's not a quick fix, but over time, I believe it will really make a difference. Hi. Hi. Uh, I think I understand Australia contributes a lot keep in their contributions towards education and health in Papua New Guinea. And I think uh, most of the services are not delivered uh, where the money's been intended. And that's why I think that in skepticism among the taxpayers here that uh, money is not delivered to proper channels where it's supposed to be. And that's been a major challenge with, uh, I think, local governments in their own countries. Uh, there's no transparency that money is delivered uh, and I think these projects are corrupted. So that's been a big challenge. I'm wondering if there could be like, you know, legislation to protect those kind of funds that uh, goes into those corrupt countries. And I think also is a challenge for, I think, local governments back in the villages, uh, in their own countries to, I think, lack of providing industries that uh, I think at the end of the educational pipeline, I think kids could, you know, be meaningfully employed in industries, mm -hmm. which I think we just like uh, in most of the Pacific Island countries, which I understand. Mm -hmm. So that's probably the biggest setback. Kids probably like, what's the point of going to school? So right. there's no motivation then to drive them forward in, in education. So that's a challenge I've, uh, I've seen. You've raised a couple of uh, points that I think are very relevant. Uh, one is about accountability. Uh, and uh, it's clear uh, in many of the countries that we work in that we have to invest in stronger accountability networks uh, to really provide the transparency and the data uh, to point out gaps where they exist. And uh, one of the, the new things that uh, my organization is working on uh, is a specific uh, program around greater accountability. Uh, civil society organizations play a hugely important role here. Uh, we work in what I call a 360-degree manner uh, in the countries to make sure that everybody has a voice in how, uh, how education sector plans are put together, but also how they're monitored. Uh, and that's a very important part of our, uh, our business model. Uh, the second point you raised is about what happens after school and uh, whether or not governments ought to be also thinking about that. Many governments are beginning to think about that. An example is Ethiopia, uh, who is actually working with uh, some industry for apprenticeship and programs like that after school to begin to create more of a, a steady pathway for children to go from education uh, into the workplace. Uh, so you're right about that. Um, one of the things that is an eye-opening figure is if we do nothing uh, to help resolve the education uh, problems that I talked about, we're going to wind up having 
800 is the current estimate million children who are completely ill-equipped to enter the job for the job market uh, in 2030. Uh, so we have to start uh, beginning to resolve these issues now. And you're absolutely right to sort of point out the gaps between the education systems that we have now and how equipped kids are going to be in the future. Uh, and we're going to wind up in a world which has got considerably more uh, inequality, lack of opportunity, tension, uh, refugee issues, uh, and issues of that nature, unless we begin to give children the skills that they need to become meaningfully employed. So you're absolutely right about that. Look, I might ask a question, if you don't mind me abusing my position as chair. Um, Alice, I was going to say one, I've got a couple of questions actually, but I'll start with one, which is that, you know, people, I think one, uh, in these discussions, you know, doing development differently um, and, uh, you know, education is often used as an example, right? We don't really know what works. We know how to get kids into school, but we don't know how to get good mm. learning outcomes and people give the example of India and Indonesia mm. look like emerging, well, they are emerging economies, but they seem to do very badly on international tests. And that sort of argument goes in, yeah, we don't really need more money, we need more research, find out what works. Um, so, yeah, do we actually know how to uh, not just get kids into school, but actually give them a decent education? Do we have that confidence uh, to provide the basis for education investments? Well, you're, you're absolutely right that it's not just about money. Uh, you know, we uh, often say about our work is it's more money, better spent. Uh, and one of the reasons why uh, I believe that the SDG agenda added quality, uh, whereas the MDG agenda was very much focused, MDG2 was very much focused on access, uh, is because uh, it is not just about money and it's not just about infrastructure and it's not just about quantity. Um, if you look across uh, the countries that we work in, I think there are some basics. Uh, trained teachers, uh, classroom size, uh, proper curricula, uh, strong management of education systems, uh, implementation of results, uh, learning assessment, uh, but done in a way that is um, uh, enabling of teachers to do a better job rather than being punitive of teachers. Uh, and so there, those are examples of some of the basics that I think are necessary to reach uh, better quality outcomes. Uh, and so we have to begin to get those types of policy prescriptions into uh, how education ministries operate. But it's not just about uh, more money. I completely agree with you about that. Yeah, Glenn. Uh, Glenn Withers from uh, Economics here at ANU. Um, I went to a conference in Korea which was about the Education Commission that Gordon Brown headed and uh, was, was reporting mm -hmm. uh, on global education. There was a challenge from a Professor Lee uh, who writes with Professor Barrow from the United States, Professor Lee from Korea University. They were half, glass half full people. That is, from their work on growing education participation across the globe, they said, look, we've basically solved the primary education participation problem with some crucial exceptions, and therefore the priorities in global development should be moving to secondary and tertiary education, not, not just continuing to focus on primary education. And this was quite contentious, of course, and uh, much uh, discussed, but I'm wondering where, for the priorities you are focusing on and for the types of countries you're focusing on, are you having to reassess levels at which you're focusing? And of course, the debate even then led back to preschool as well. Uh, so mm. how do you resolve this problem of, of where to give your, uh, your, your strategic focus? I think they're partially right and partially wrong. Uh, if, you look at, uh, if you look at what's happened uh, since MDG2 was put in place, there has been a substantial uh, improvement in the number of children who are out of school at the primary level. It's almost been cut in half. Uh, and that's, that's a big win. Uh, but if you just look at that goal alone, it leaves a lot of things off the table which are equally important. One is quality. Uh, the second is that uh, there are many countries, and these are, this is true for many of the countries that we work in, where there are children that are no question getting all the way to the top of what I call the education staircase, and that's good. But there is not enough money in most of these countries to have the staircase be wide enough and shallow enough that a lot of children can start at the bottom of the staircase. And so many children are completely being left 
out of the picture. And that's why we are so devoted to equity. Uh, and it particularly affects girls. Uh, it affects children who live in the remotest parts of the country, uh, ethnic minorities, uh, and children with disabilities, intellectual and physical disabilities. And so if we're going to have a broad-based effect on helping societies advance uh, with educated people, uh, we can't just focus on the upper levels of education because the children who never start will never start. So we have to focus on both. But we also need proper opportunities at the upper end of education so that people can begin to get into the job market. So I wouldn't consider it uh, an either-or situation. We, in fact, need both. We, in fact, need both. Yeah, Wendy. Hi, um, we have all our education experts gathered here today. So. I, I can learn something from you then. <laughs> um, yeah, Wendy Jarvie. I'm here in my guise as an early, early childhood education top person. Uh, and I've been working on the GBE project in the Pacific Pearls, Pacific Pearls. Early Age mm -hmm. Readiness and Learning, Early Childhood and Early Grade Reading stuff, whatever, which is terrific if I might promote it. It's a terrific project. Take note of that, guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Really innovative, uh, and it's really getting results quite quickly too, which I think is really one of the things, as you say, bedevils education. You, the outcomes come too slowly to persuade them. We're getting some. We're getting some good results. But one of the big things I've been working both health and education departments in my role, and I can see a substantial difference in capacity between ministries of health and ministries of education, and I do see that as one of the big barriers. Do you want to talk a little bit about capacity and why are education ministries? So much weaker um, than health ones. Hmm. I mean, if anyone's got the inspiration. I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. We actually haven't done any sort of specific research comparing uh, health and education ministries. It may be that there has been now over at least fifteen years more focus on health uh, than on education. But uh, we do need to remedy that. Um, education is also incredibly administratively heavy. Uh, so it's not just a federal government uh, level thing. It's not just a policy thing. There are layers of administrative requirement when you go you know, from federal to state to province, uh, to et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I agree with you. I think that there, is, uh, there are capacity gaps, and we have to begin to figure out how to remedy those. But exactly what the reason is, it probably differs uh, country to country to country. Early childhood, though, you mentioned that. I know that's, and, and you mentioned that. Uh, one of the, we have begun to really focus on early childhood as well. Uh, one of our new, uh, our new programs is focusing specifically on early childhood. We are very taken by the data that shows that the payoffs are substantial of getting uh, children into school early in terms of learning outcomes, preparedness, uh, et cetera. Uh, so it's something that we've really taken note of, and I expect that we'll continue to do so. We're, we're believers in that one. Do you want to say a bit more about the uh, Gordon Brown Commission? Is that the something Gordon Brown Commission. you're endorsing or um, they're directing you, or how does that work? Well, we, first of all, they've done a fantastic job uh, at, at really portraying uh, some of the challenges in education and what the case for investment is in education. And that's actually been a real, uh, a real addition to. Uh, you know, the understanding surrounding as we really head off into the SDGs. So I applaud them for that. They've done some fantastic work. Uh, they've also made some, uh, I think, some very important recommendations, uh, one of which is very much framing our work, which is it calls for a scale-up of my organization. Uh, when I talk about GPE becoming an organization that is uh, reaching a level of $2 billion a year by 2020, uh, that's their recommendation. So we've seized on that. It also calls for us to become $4 billion by uh, 2030. So there's some big, big up, uh, uptick there. And we very much agreed with that and embraced that. And have also really embraced the challenge associated with that. Uh, the commission also calls on, uh, uh, and it, it re provides a number of recommendations about how to get more money into education. We would very much uh, agree with that and uh, hope that we can work with them closely on putting some of those things into place. But we think they've done a good job. Okay. Is 
Um, my name's Hilary Smith, I'm an education researcher, and um, just thinking about your message there about that it's a, that education is a silent um, issue and uh, the need to sort of push out some key messages to the wider public. I'm just wondering because in our, uh, in this region, in the Pacific, um, where um, diversity is, is a huge factor and um, some of the issues around scalability, um, some of those key messages don't, are, uh, just trying to think how to, I'm thinking particularly of the issue around girls' education because my research in, in, in um, Kiribati Solomons and, and Vanuatu found that actually it's boys' education that's becoming um, an issue. And so given sort of globally the issue of girls' education, how do we then take our smaller numbers-wise, but important locally, issue of boys' education and sort of, you know, how do we make those, how do we get those messages out? Well, I think you've raised an important um, question. I think, I think ideally it ought to be equal education for boys and girls. Uh, now, in many of the countries that we work in in GPE, it's the girls who are disadvantaged. Uh, for a variety of reasons. But you're right, there are a few countries where that's not the case. Uh, and that doesn't mean that we can just forget about that problem, but ideally we would get to a level where both girls and boys have uh, equal opportunities. Yeah. Is they through? Yes. Yeah. 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 I'm Steve Hasler, I'm a professor of statistics here at IEM. And I'm not going to ask for a technical question. I'm just going to make, uh, raise two separate, slightly separate issues, if I may. Um, the first is I, uh, I do a lot of stuff in poverty mapping and small area estimation, which is fine-level detail, statistical modelling. And one of the things that comes out just about every one of those models, whether it's stunting in children, under five, wasting, underweight, or whether it's expenditure poverty, is that girls' education is one of the main, one of the drivers of the models. The interesting thing, though, is that the girls' education tends to, as the children get to finishing primary school, what seems to be happening is that the girls decide when they get married or have children that they won't have too many children because they want them to have an education. So the model that they have large families in order to be supported old age transits into a model where they tend to have smaller families and try and educate the children. So if I, the question really is, do you see a link between problems of population growth and education? Um, the second one is, um, I'm not quite sure this is a question or more of a plea really. Um, I think I've worked in a couple of dozen government statistical agencies or with the people who are in these government statistical agencies. The stuff I'm doing is quite complicated. What I'm asked to do is do a two-week training program to explain to people how to do it. Uh, this is a complete, no, it's not going to work. It'll never work, it's just not possible. What we actually need is that these people are given PhD scholarships to the PhDs of people who know what they're doing. And I feel often embarrassed working in these countries on poverty issues because it's not my poverty. I'm just a white face turning up to provide expert opinion. So my question really is, you know, for, for GPE, are you interested in, in that sort of structure which actually provides insights you know, and possible economic migration, but that uh, actually provides the experts that are needed who've got local knowledge and who are, who are experts in their own country and support in their own country, rather than this continual arrangement where we're, we're doing the important stuff about educating at the lower levels, but the experts do fly and fly out. Let me answer your second question first and then your first question second. Uh, I, I think looking forward, aid models in the future are only going to be successful if they help uh, people in the countries manage their own ministries, manage their own work, and just flying consultants around and so forth is not gonna get the job done. And one of the reasons why we have chosen a business model that works with uh, ministries is precisely that. Uh, and ideally, we would be able to step away 
uh, eventually, and ministries would feel that they've got all the uh, necessary ingredients to get the job done. So I completely agree with you about that. Uh, your first question about population growth, um, and maybe is it a cause or is it an effect, and you had another sort of question embedded in there about girls. Um, what happens with girls is that they tend to go, to, if one could make a generalization, hard to do so, but let me try, is that they tend to, increasingly we see that they're going to primary school and finishing primary school, but then when they get to lower secondary school, they drop out or drop off the radar screen for a variety of reasons. Uh, either there's not enough schools close enough by to the household that girls have to travel for long distances and families don't feel uh, comfortable with them doing that. Uh, poverty often leads families to choose to marry the girls off very early. They then start having children very early, and, and then uh, on and on it goes. Uh, so there are a variety of reasons that cause girls to drop off of school uh, quite early, and that's why we see the, the attendance at the primary level being quite different from the attendance at the lower secondary level. Uh, the question of whether or not education uh, could have a any impact on population growth. It's an interesting one. There's been some recent data coming out of Brookings, uh, and this probably is not the most politically correct way of framing this, that says that one of the most um, cost-effective ways of beginning to contend with climate change is education, because it will lead to women deciding to have fewer children, which will reduce uh, the population footprint and therefore uh, the carbon emissions footprint. Um, and even though that's, that rubs some people the wrong way, uh, I can see how that data would make sense. Uh, so there clearly are links between education and population, uh, and it's, I think it's worthy of further exploration. <laughs> great idea, can't comment on how it gets done, but great, great idea. I'd love one myself. Okay, we've got a couple of questions. So we start with uh, Hejin, and then Pascal. Uh, I'd like to ask a question about your rep uh, replenishment uh, campaign. Uh, given the trend in uh, the financing in the international development, uh, you may focus on uh, private sector companies. Uh, then, uh, how do you? What is your? How do you uh, attract the private companies to fund uh, the, the education? And uh, what is your strategy so to attract, uh, to persuade uh, the, the big uh, companies to uh, uh, the, <coughs> the collaborate here? And uh, isn't, uh, isn't there any clash between uh, your goal and their requirement when they uh, donate, for example? Interesting that you uh, you asked that, and I should also at this moment uh, recognize Sue Graves uh, sitting back there, uh, who is our Australian government board member uh, on our board of directors and has uh, spent an enormous amount of time uh, very fruitfully over the past year helping us redesign how we do our funding. Uh, so I would break our engagement with the private sector sort of into two buckets. First is private philanthropy. Uh, we're in the process, having been at a standing start of zero a few years ago, uh, beginning to attract foundations into funding certain parts of our work, particularly some of our thematic priorities. Uh, and we've begun to adjust some of our policies to allow specific targeted funding into certain places. Uh, and having been at a standing start uh, just a few years ago, we're making steady progress on getting more foundations uh, interested and involved in our work. Uh, at the moment, there is no equivalent of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in education. Uh, so in the, in the spirit of realism, uh, I don't think it is likely that we're going to have hundreds of millions of dollars of investment overnight uh, from private foundations in our work. Uh, as part of this replenishment, I think we're going to be on a much more sort of steady, uh, steady growth path. Uh, the business community is, I think, an, an interesting and different set of challenges. It's clear when you look at our work and you look at the delivery challenges in education that the private sector uh, can, can certainly contribute know-how. Uh, one example of that is data. If you look at uh, data availability uh, in education systems uh, in terms of use of policy uh, and policy formulation, for example, the evidence base, uh, the, da the data is very patchy, it's not stored very well, it's not analyzed necessarily consistently, uh, and it may very well uh, be possible uh, that the private sector could help us resolve that. Sorry about the lights, it's, it's time to... <laughs> <laughs> no, 
trying to figure out what was going on with the lights. I know sometimes in my office the lights go off, and then I have to jump up and down, and they go on again. Okay. Well, that's getting worse, not better. I'm going to let you do that, because I have no idea what that is. All right. On, on. Ah! Let there be light. Let there be light. Uh, so we are working with uh, the business community on know-how at the moment, and I would say that is a stage one. Uh, it is to be explored whether or not the business community will actually give us contributions. Uh, at the moment, we are set up to do that, but uh, we're at a stage one with the moment, which will focus more on uh, know-how necessarily than uh, financing. The large majority of our financing uh, for this upcoming replenishment will come from governments, uh, we're focusing specifically on, uh, we have about 20 uh, sovereign donors now. We're very pleased with all those relationships. We will be asking every single one of them to step up uh, and step up big for this replenishment. Um, we think there's a very strong argument to be made there. We'll be also reaching out to some new uh, sovereign donors to join us. Uh, so we'll be all at it, all in between now and, uh, and the first quarter when this will all come to a conclusion. Okay, I'll take one more question. Hi, I'm Pascal. I'm a student here at Crawford. I'm from Indonesia, and uh, my question is uh, whether you have a strategy to work in a more decentralized education system. Like in Indonesia, of course, there's the Ministry of Education, but the decisions of education are really made at the local level. So what do you do in this kind of more maybe fragmented system? And secondly, um, do you see uh, what role education can play to reduce corruption? Because I think Indonesia have done um, a lot of progress in the last years and um, the enrollment in schools is high and we've got many people studying abroad, but still we are struggling to make progress on the, uh, trans in the Transparency International Corruption Perception Index. We make very small progress in the last five to ten years. Thank you. Well, I think on, on dealing with uh, working in countries that are uh, large, decentralized countries, countries with um, big sort of federated state uh, structures, you know, Nigeria, Pakistan, your country, uh, what we tend to do is work at the state level. Uh, so in Pakistan, for example, we work in Baluchistan and Sindh, and we work with the authorities at the state level there. Uh, it's hard to do. Uh, it's hard to get right. What is the right relationship between the federal level and the state level? But that's the right way to do it. Uh, in terms of corruption, uh, I'd like to think that an educated uh, citizenry is going to be more inclined to really put pressure on the government uh, to stop being corrupt. Uh, so building democracy, building transparency, building people's ability to read, to vote, uh, to take part in um, civil discourse, Hopefully it will make a difference, but that's a long game. But it's worth, it's obviously a worthwhile investment. All right, well, I'm, I'm going to take the last question. Uh, help you prepare for your meeting tomorrow with DFAT, right? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, DFAT's been a big supporter of Gavi, as you know, and um, yes. the uh, Global Fund. But, yeah, I think they are worried that they're going to move out of Pacific and Asia as these countries graduate, and uh, they're going to be focused on Africa. I know there's a lot of nervousness about that in DFAT. So is, uh, what's GPE's graduation policy and, and are you going to remain in Asia and the Pacific, which is that sort of key area for Australia? Two points. Um, first of all, we're very committed to Asia and the Pacific, and I can run you through uh, the details of what that looks like. But we have, uh, we have adjusted various parts of our eligibility at a couple of times in the past, specifically to be able to focus on uh, on a number of countries and also the island states here. So yes, we're very committed to it and we uh, will continue to do so. Uh, so we're not, we are not moving out of that area. Uh, we've also put in place, um, and this is part of the work that Sue uh, has recently led, uh, a more varied way of working with the countries within our geography. We first of all have expanded our eligibility now up to 89 countries. We've put in place a number of different ways to work with those countries. Uh, in part, it is to address the question of countries who on paper look like their growth standards are getting or their growth levels are getting a little bit better, but when you begin to unpeel it, their education standards are still pretty challenged. And we now have a more varied way of dealing with those countries. Uh, and if we are able to be successful our, with our replenishment, we'll have the resources we need to be able to work with all of them. Great. Okay, well, um, <clears throat> we are out of time. And... Um... People say lectures are going out of fashion, and actually conversation is a new way to run a seminar. So right, thank you, you proved that. That was a really interesting discussion. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you all. Thank you for your interest.
interest, most, uh, most grateful. I really enjoyed the questions. Thank you. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.